0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on type 1 diabetes. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Type 1 diabetes accounts for about 5 to 10% of all patients with diabetes. It is the most commonly diagnosed diabetes of young people. Worldwide, the incidence is increasing by about 3% every year, and it can cause a range of short and long-term complications, from diabetic ketoacidosis to diabetic retinopathy. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line, Professor Rajesh Garg, who's Professor of Medicine at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And importantly, Rajesh is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Rajesh, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is type one diabetes?
1: Thank you for inviting me for this podcast. Uh, type one diabetes is high blood sugars, that happen due to full destruction of the beta cells that's the insulin producing cells in the pancreas most commonly it is uh, due to autoimmune destruction which means the body's own defense mechanisms they attack the uh, insulin producing cells but the underlying main thing is that there, there is uh, complete insulin deficiency And as a result, uh, the blood sugars go up above the limits that are set for the definition of diabetes, which is the fasting blood sugar more than 126 or random blood sugar more than 200 with symptoms or hemoglobin A1c more than 6.5.
0: Okay, thank you. And tell us, how do you make a definitive diagnosis of type 1 diabetes?
1: Type 1 is, uh, diabetes is a relatively serious diagnosis. So most of the patients with type 1 diabetes, almost 95%, they will present with symptoms. And the symptoms include too much urination, too much thirst, weight loss, sometimes blood vision. So they feel the symptoms. Uh, but as many as one third of the patients who are newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, they present with the uh, acute complication, which is diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a serious, life threatening com- complication if not treated. And uh, so, still to this day, there are about one third patients who present with uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, the important thing when we make a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes is to differentiate it from other types of diabetes. Because diabetic ketoacidosis can happen in other types, like type two diabetes or pancreatic diabetes, which was actually more common during the COVID epidemic because people were delaying getting clinical care for their symptoms. So when to make a definitive diagnosis of type one diabetes, as Against other types of diabetes, we 2 tests, which are the tests for the antibodies. There are three antibodies that are common, uh, commonly detected in patients with type one diabetes. These are GAD antibodies, IA2 or insulinoma-like antigen type two antibodies, and then zinc transporter 8 antibodies. In addition to these antibodies, which will suggest uh, autoimmune disease or autoimmune onset of diabetes we can also look at the insulin production from the pancreas and that we do by measuring c-peptide so c-peptide is a protein it's a part of the protein that makes insulin so the pro-insulin which is the peptide before insulin is released into the body that splits into two particles one is c-peptide and the other is insulin Because insulin half-life is really short. So mostly insulin uh, measurements are not that accurate. And that's why we measure C-peptide, which gives us the indication how much insulin body is producing. And so those levels are going to be low in type 1 diabetes, mostly undetectable. But when it's diagnosed initially, they, they may not be zero, but they may be very low.
0: Okay, thank you. And why do patients get blurred vision?
1: So when the blood sugars are rapidly rising, there is a osmotic uh, differences in the eyes. Kind of the sugar goes into the eyes and they swell up. And those, that osmotic effect in the lens and the other compartments of the eyes, they change the refraction. And so that's why people feel blurred vision. And this is also one of the reasons why we tell patients not to get new glasses when their sugars are high or they are fluctuating.
0: What's the difference between type, type 1 diabetes and maturity onset diabetes of the young? Or, or is there a difference?
1: So maturity onset diabetes of the young is a kind of type two diabetes that happens to be in younger people. It's, a, it's also called monogenic diabetes, which means it is inherited uh, by mostly it's a dominant inheritance. So many patients who develop Modi they have family members like their parents or their grandparents who will have type 2 diabetes it's important to differentiate because both type 1 diabetes and modi or maturity onset diabetes of the young they appear or they are diagnosed in younger people and mostly lean people so many patients with modi they get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes because they are lean and they are younger but the difference is they still produce insulin most of them don't have antibodies or the titus may be really low and uh, they respond to uh, oral agents so they can be treated without insulin whereas for type 1 diabetes insulin is the treatment they if they don't get insulin they can get into acute complication which is dka and die but the maturity onset diabetes of the young patients or which is type of kind of type two diabetes, they can survive without insulin. Actually their treatment of choice, at least for many of many types of MODI, is sulfonylureas.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. And you mentioned a number of advances in diagnosis from C peptide to antibodies. Are, are there any other advances in diagnosis, or are they the main ones?
1: Unfortunately, not. Not in uh, type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is one of the more understood, but it's autoimmune process. So, uh, as I said before, still a large number of patients, as many as one-third, they are diagnosed when they are in diabetic ketoacidosis. The advancement that we have seen in type 1 diabetes field is actually predicting who will get type 1 diabetes, which is very interesting, and this has developed over the last 20 years or so, that we have seen that people who uh, are prone to type 1 diabetes, like the, someone has family members or um, history of uh, family history of type 1 diabetes mostly, siblings or parents so if we measure their antibodies and there are two or more antibodies against type 1 diabetes that are positive their likelihood of getting type 1 diabetes is much higher so that means we can watch them more carefully probably monitor them warn them that if they get symptoms symptoms, they should check right away that those antibodies are highly predictive to the extent of 85% of people who have those antibodies in some studies went on to develop type 1 diabetes.
0: What are the common pitfalls in diagnosis, would you say?
1: Right, so it's really a Interesting that type 1 diabetes used to happen only in children, or mostly in children, and most children used to be lean. The peak uh, onset of type 1 diabetes is somewhere in the teens, like between 12 to 14 years of age. But with the common theme in the society is obesity. So a lot of kids are also becoming obese. And developing type 2 diabetes so that to differentiate between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes in children that is important that's number one so don't assume that an obese ch- child with uh, who is likely to have insulin resistance is going to be type 2 or on the other hand type 1 th- there are ch- children who will be Will have type 2 diabetes so they may not need insulin or they may need insulin but in different way and then the other thing is uh, there is a misconception or we don't suspect it that type 1 diabetes can also appear at much much later age for example i personally have seen patients who are as old as in their 80s and they get diabetes at that age And when we test them based on clinical suspicion, they turn out to be type 1 diabetic because they have antibodies and low C-peptide. And in some of them, especially in those who are uh, older age onset of type 1 diabetes, there is a tendency to assume that they have type 2 diabetes because type 1 diabetes, especially in elderly or older people above age of 30 years, it can be slow onset. So it may initially may not require insulin because there is a very slow progression of beta cell destruction. It may take as many as two years or even to five years. I have seen that in my practice. So those people can respond to oral agents or may not need insulin initially. And so they may get misdiagnosed as type two. But in fact, they have type 1 and they can suddenly then progress on to acute complications. So then that's what we need to have high level of suspicion. If uh, we suspect, uh, then we should test. There should be a low threshold to test C-peptide and GAD antibodies uh, to differentiate.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management. Can you tell us about, recent advances in management
1: the management of type 1 diabetes is still insulin so the mainstay is insulin now there have been advances in the types of insulins that we use until uh, mid 90s we only had regular insulin or some form of regular insulin which is the regular human insulin but from mid-90s onwards, we, we, there have been several insulin analogues, which means the types of insulins that have a different molecular structure that makes them either much longer-acting or much shorter-acting. And in type 1 diabetes, we need both. We need a longer-acting insulin, uh, which lasts for 24 hours or even longer. And then we need very short-acting insulin that works along with food. And unfortunately, regular insulin was neither, it was in between. It was neither very short-acting nor very long-acting. So it was harder to manage. But with insulin analogs, it's becoming better. So that's one advance. And the other advance in uh, management of type 1 diabetes is technological, which is insulin pumps and the continuous glucose monitoring devices and most importantly the algorithm between those two so the if you monitor blood sugars continuously and then put that number continuously into an equation for a patient and that, that gives you an answer of insulin dose and then the pump gives you the insulin dose based on that algorithm that kind of becomes artificial pancreas. And we are already there. Actually, there are two devices that are uh, available, FDA approved in US. And they are pretty commonly used for type 1 diabetes. And they are very effective in preventing low blood sugars and preventing high blood sugars and maintaining uh, good control. So those are the main practical advances. Now, there are many other things that are happening in the field, like islet cell uh, transplantation or stem cell research, which are not ready for prime time. We were very hopeful. We have been hopeful that those uh, advances will start helping patients. But we, I think we still need to be more patient.
0: OK, thank you. That's really helpful. Let's look at the insulin analogs in the first instance. Are there any side effects of those insulin analogs that are are different to what you might see in normal insulin?
1: Not that we know of, other than their cost. So that is the major problem of using insulin analogs is that they can be expensive. So, But otherwise, in terms of their immunogenicity or... uh, side effects nothing has really been proven that will be relevant clinically we use insulin analogs more and more the regular insulin is used only when the patient cannot afford and we don't know of any particular side effects of insulin analogs
0: okay Thank you. And what about the, um, the technological advances, the pumps and the monitoring and the, the algorithm? Is, is that method of glucose control, is that associated with any side effects?
1: Not really. Actually, that's a pretty good advance if used correctly. Now, the problem with insulin pumps is the education. If the patients are educated adequately to to monitor, to use their pumps correctly. They are pretty good, safe. They improve their quality of life. But if they get disconnected, for example, by error or anything, then the chances of getting diabetic ketoacidosis are much higher with insulin pumps because there is no bolus of insulin there is no insulin in the background and the pump is giving very small amount of insulin continuously so there is a more quick concept of dka or acute com- complication of type 1 diabetes with pump if it stops giving insulin and the patient does not realize the other side effect that potentially what i think personally can be resolved if with good education is hypoglycemia. So I know uh, instances where people died because of insulin pumps because uh, just the insulin pumps, not the CGM, that problem, because the pump will keep giving insulin. If someone gets hypoglycemia and they don't disconnect the pump or immediately the hypoglycemia is not treated, then the pump doesn't know unless there is also a continuous glucose monitoring system, which is talking to the pump and instructing it to stop giving insulin.
0: Okay, but it, but it shouldn't happen if the pump is used alongside continuous glucose monitoring, I think is what you're saying.
1: Correct. If the continuous glucose monitoring system and the pump and the algorithm they are being used, that's one of the safest things that we can do because the pump will stop if there is hypoglycemia.
0: Okay. What are the common pitfalls in management, would you say?
1: I will say the education, uh, just like some of the things we talked about, about the insulin pumps, if the patient is not adequately uh, educated about taking care of hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia and then the the other thing is management of type 1 diabetes during acute illness Uh, because in the COVID pandemic we saw many patients with type 1 diabetes coming in with diabetic ketoacidosis because what happens is type 1 diabetes patients need insulin whether they are eating or not eating sick or healthy so many patients they stop insulin when they are not eating or they feel sick or for any uh, intercurrent illness which is uh, the wrong thing they have to have some insulin uh, which with good education most patients we tell them that uh, basal insulin you have to have some background insulin all the time whether you eat or don't eat. So I, I think that is one of the things that we see quite often.
0: Okay. Thank you. Last question, which is a question about questions. Um what what other common questions that we haven't covered do you commonly get asked about this illness?
1: I think the the one of the things is the fear in patients with type 1 diabetes is the chronic complications, long-term complications like foot amputations, going blind and uh, kidney failure. Those complications can be prevented. We have enough data that to a very large extent uh, the chronic complications of diabetes can be prevented with good care of diabetes. And the other thing is, uh, you cannot lead a normal life. Most patients with type 1 diabetes, with proper care, with, especially these days with devices and, and your insulin, can do anything in life. Like we have tennis players or football players, or people can do everything. So if you have type 1 diabetes, people, there is nothing stopping them. And then the other th- Thing that I have seen uh, is the opposite spectrum of this. Some patients they just become so obsessive with controlling their sugars that they start getting hypoglycemia. They get into accidents, they get seizures. I have had some patients who whose lives were totally turned upside down because they became so obsessive about controlling their sugars that they were getting hypoglycemia. So, you have to strike a balance between low blood sugars and high blood sugars. The goal is preventing high sugars without getting hypoglycemia. So, it's not helpful to hurt yourself now in the expectation that you are going to prevent long-term complications. So I think those are the questions that I would like people to know.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Rajesh, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned in action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.